I'm so grateful for a worship leader and a worship team that are sensitive to the Spirit of God. I was, I was praying this morning, and the thing the, the Spirit was telling me this morning is just be expectant. Let it be different today. Don't, don't come and just sing your songs and hear your sermon or, for me, preach your sermon and go home. Let, let it be different. And God is just in control of this thing. Getting down on our knees. Some of you were on the concrete. It was a little painful. But you stayed down on your knees for a while just saying, I don't, I don't want this to be like any other Sunday. I want to worship you. So, Reggie, if you can hear me wherever you are, thank you, brother. Thank you, team, for doing what you're doing, leading us. Can't hear it. They're applauding for you right now, so praise God. Now, I'm, I'm so excited about the sermon series that we're launching today, the sermon series Like Jesus. If you have been around for eight years or more, uh, then you'll recognize this is a reboot. We, we actually preached this, uh, or a, ser- a series like it, eight years ago. We were looking at the character of Jesus. And, and what I love about it is the Spirit brought us back to talk through this, this idea, the character of Christ over again, specifically where we are about, about halfway through the vision that God has given us, because it was born from this deep dive into the person and character of Jesus. But I also, I've learned a ton over the last eight years as we've walked through this journey. And one of the things I've learned the most about are people who don't normally come to church, I know the majority of my relationships are church-going people. It's, it's you guys because I see you week after week, and we're in community group together and D group together, so I, I know you guys. But over the last few years, especially, the Lord has called me to get to know people outside the church, people who don't normally come through either my neighborhood or through friends uh, in school or whatever it may be. And, and I, I've learned a ton over these last few years. One of the things I've learned is that there are some remarkable people who don't go to church, people who are brilliant, who are profound in depth and experience. It's been, it's been amazing to get to know some of these people that I've, I met outside the church. Another thing I've realized is the vast majority of them are very, very spiritual people. The, the vast majority believe in something transcendent. They, they might not have the exact same belief system I do, but, but they believe there's more to this life than just what meets the eye. Third thing I've realized about them is that the vast majority of them really like Jesus. They're they're very intrigued by Jesus as a person. Whether we have the same view of Jesus or not, they they look at Jesus and they go, he's profound, I want to know more about him. But I've also come to the conclusion, as I've talked to more and more people, that the vast majority of them, they like Jesus, but they don't like church-going people. There's some kind of disconnect in their minds between Jesus and people who claim to follow Jesus, at least those who gather together with the church. In fact, if you're watching this online, one of the reasons you may be watching this online is because you're intrigued by Jesus, but you just don't know if you want to be with a bunch of weirdos inside a church building. If that's you, I'm grateful you're tuning in, and I pray that you get more intrigued by Jesus through this sermon series. But I think for those of us, or those of you watching who are believers, those of us in the room, we got to ask the question, where did the disconnect come from? Because apparently there's some kind of alignment issue going on here. I mean, I think, it, I think it begs the question, how in the world did the followers of Jesus get a different reputation than Jesus? Like, how do, they, how do people like Jesus but don't like us, the people who claim to live like Jesus? Which I actually think that might be the problem, what I just said right there. I, I don't know how many of us actually want to live like Jesus. I think we like Jesus. I just don't know if we want to live like Jesus. Those are two very different things. I mean, I know if you are a church-going person, 
that you're, you're probably here because you, you want to you wanna honor Jesus, you believe in Jesus, you want to be a good person, you want to raise good children, you, you, you want to you be a positive influence on the world. I, I know all this about you, but what I also know is that there are many of us who don't really want to live the radical way that Jesus lived. Because you do remember he was crucified, right? Like that, that's not easy to really live like Jesus. And, and I think we got to challenge ourselves to ask the question, do we really want to live like Jesus? Now, I will say there are also hundreds of you in this room who, if I were to ask the question, do you really want to live like Jesus? Your answer would be, yes, I do. Now, I know I'm not perfect, but I know I've been redeemed by the glory of King Jesus. He has saved me, and, and I want to live for him, and I want to live like him. He has loved me, and I want to love him back. So I want to go where he tells me to go. I want to do what he tells me to do. I do want to live like Jesus. I believe there are hundreds of you in this room. There are many of you watching online, and that's your story. You want to be like Jesus. In fact, if you are one of the ones who are still here, after we started casting this vision a little over seven years ago, I know you're only here because you don't want a country club church. Otherwise, you wouldn't still be here. Now, Fielder has had an incredible journey over the, the many years of its existence, and it's been led well by all these years, but we are a church in the United States of America. And if you haven't noticed, the American brand of Christianity doesn't always look like Jesus. It, it values things that Jesus doesn't value, and it misses things that break the heart of Jesus. There's an alignment problem oftentimes with the American church and with the person of Jesus. And Fielder is no, we're not like completely devoid of that. We have areas that we struggle with over the years. We have and we do and we always will. But I remember when the church was voting, seven years ago, the church voted for me to be the next pastor. And I stepped into this position with fear and trembling because I wanted to be painfully, beautifully aligned with the person of Jesus. I wanted it to be such that if, if the church were to vote Jesus to be the next pastor instead of me, that he would do what I'm doing, that I would do what he's doing. Like if he were to come in, he'd just keep doing what we're doing because we're doing the things that really beat with his heart. And I began to ask a question. I still speak about this every single covenant membership class. I always talk about how I want to celebrate what Jesus celebrates and I want to weep over what Jesus weeps over. And as we as leadership and staff seven years ago were dialoguing about it, one of the things we realized is that we were celebrating things that Jesus could care less about. Rooms filled with people and having the budget to do church. Jesus wasn't really concerned about those things and we're applauding ourselves for it. And then Jesus is weeping over things, people dying and going to hell, children who have been forgotten and neglected and we're oblivious to it. And, and we started to pray, God, what would it look like for us to be aligned with the person of Jesus? And we began to make a lot of changes. This is why we focus so much on mentoring kids and sending them out, because we believe that's what Jesus would do if he were leading this church. This is why we adopt and foster parent children. This is why we try to give generously, where people give away large portions of their income for the cause of Christ. This is why we plant churches all over the world, because we believe these are the things that Jesus would do if he were leading this church. And those of you who have hung around over the last seven years or so as we've begun to embark upon this vision, I know you've only hung around because you want to be like Jesus or you would have a long time ago left this church. So if you're here and you've stuck around, thank you. I want to encourage you and say, I know you want to live like Jesus. If you become a part of this church, whether you've done so digitally or, on, or in person in here because you love the vision and the direction and the heartbeat of this church, that tells me you want to be aligned with Jesus. 
You don't want to just go to church. You don't want to just be a good little Christian. You want to be like Jesus. And maybe what you most need is just a reminder of what it looks like to live like Jesus. And that's what this sermon series is all about. So between now all the way to Palm Sunday, we're going to have sermons that challenge us to live just like Jesus. And we're going to talk a whole lot about the character of Christ. We're going to look at how he lived in the four Gospels. And we're going to study his personality and what he taught. But I do not want this to be a history lesson for you. I want this to be a challenge for you to take these truths and imitate them, to try to live like Jesus. My prayer for you is at the end of this sermon series, by the time you hit Easter, the people around you look at you and say, you look more like Jesus than you used to, that your character is transformed as you try to live more like him. So for 12 weeks after this Sunday, we're going to look at 12 unique characteristics of Jesus And I'm going to challenge you to try to drink deep of these and live them out in your daily life. But this morning, I'm not going to start with any one of those characteristics because I think we need to pull up at a higher level. I want to give you an umbrella view, a 30,000-foot level view of why Jesus lived the way he lived and why he challenged the way that he challenged. I I want to reframe your understanding of Jesus because I'm afraid some of you may misunderstand who Jesus was. Especially coming out of the Christmas season, I I think we might have a tendency to to get stuck on Jesus as a cute little baby sitting in a manger, and like that becomes our full view of Jesus. He's safe and cuddly. Now, he was a baby in a manger, but that's not where he stayed. We have to graduate from that. And and I know there there are many others who graduate to the point where they recognize that Jesus was a profound teacher and philosopher, and and he he preached love and peace, and, and sure enough, he did those things. That's not where he stopped. We have to graduate from that. Now, there are many of you who are believers in Jesus, and you go, no, no, man, he was a miracle worker. That brother, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he walked on water. He was supernaturally powerful. And absolutely, he was that, but that wasn't all he was. We actually have to graduate from that, because let me go ahead and tell you, no one gets crucified for preaching love and peace and and working miracles. You get crucified for challenging the status quo. And at his core, that's exactly who Jesus was. He was a revolutionary who challenged the status quo of everything around him. And that's what got him crucified. And I think we need to come back and recognize that revolutionary nature of Jesus, that he was a challenger of all of our beliefs, and we need to let him challenge our beliefs. We're going to start in his very first sermon, and the whole sermon is a challenge to the status quo. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you have them either on your phone or in person. I want you to go to the Gospel of Matthew. Now, if you're not very familiar with your Bible, go ahead. there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. The first book of the New Testament is Matthew. There are four Gospels. Over these next 13 weeks, we're going to be all over these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four Gospels are just four vantage points of the same story, the story of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to be in the first book, Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to read what's called the Beatitudes. And many of you will be familiar with these. You've heard them before. But as you read the Beatitudes, especially if you've read them many times as a Christian and grown up in church, I want you to be really cautious not to lazily read them because it'd be very easy for you to read the Beatitudes and just yawn your way through them because you're so familiar with them. I want you to read them with fresh eyes, almost like it's the first time you've ever heard them because I want you to think about the revolutionary nature of what Jesus is saying as he kicks off his very first sermon he ever preached. So here's where it starts. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2 says this, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's stop there for a moment. So we've just read the first part of Jesus' first sermon, the Beatitudes. Now, if you've you've ever heard the the title Beatitude and wondered where that word came from, it's just the Latin word for blessedness. It's talking about the state of blessedness. That's that's what the Beatitudes, the the blessedness statements are. Now, as I was researching this, and I I wanted to really understand what, what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are. And so I was looking at the original language, and I was studying it in light of how it was used outside of the Bible. In classical Greek literature, the the Greek word is makarios, and it was a word that was used very frequently by people like Socrates, by Homer, and other Greek philosophers, and almost every single time the word makarios was used, it was referring to something that only the gods could attain. Makarios referred to the transcendent state of happiness that was not affected by circumstances. In other words, it was a happiness that wasn't affected by work, wasn't affected by cares of the world, wasn't even affected by death. And the reason why it was reserved for the gods, because only the gods could stand above all these things. They were the only ones not affected by death or cares of the world or labor. So they were the only ones who could achieve makarios in Greek thought. And then here comes Jesus onto the scene. He says, no, 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 no. It's not the gods. It's every person who lives according to my way. They can achieve this transcendent state of happiness, the state of blessedness, makarios. So if you've ever wanted to achieve a transcendent state of happiness, you should probably lean into what Jesus has to say. But let me go ahead and warn you, it doesn't make sense. I don't know if you've ever read the Beatitudes and really thought through what he's saying, but it, it, it is almost unintelligible what he's saying. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry and thirsty, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. The transcendent state of happiness through suffering, pain, sadness, meekness, and humility. There's a, you got to remember, there was an original audience who was hearing this for the first time, and they're hearing Jesus go and say, What? You mean I can achieve a transcendent state of happiness by doing all the things that are supposed to make me not happy? Because think about it. Each one of these is completely contrary to happiness. Very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm going to talk more about that at the end, this idea of of being broken and humble. Look, the world says if you want to be happy, you got to be self-confident. you got to walk out in the world and you got to own it. you got to take charge of this thing around you. And Jesus said, no, no, no. True happiness comes from being lowly. Next one, blessed are those who mourn. That's about as opposite as it comes. Isn't sadness like the opposite of happiness? The world will tell you if you want to be happy, you better change your circumstances. If you don't like your circumstances, do something about them because you're not going to be happy until your circumstances are good. And Jesus says, no, 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 blessed are you when things are broken and you're sad. We were just watching last night the movie Inside Out, and there's joy and sadness and that realization that at some point sadness has got to take charge. Like this is what Jesus is saying. You got to let sadness take charge sometimes. You'll never find happiness. 
didn't make any sense to the people who were hearing it the first time. Verse three, blessed are the meek. Meek means not aggressive. Well, what does the world say? The world says, be aggressive, be, be aggressive. This is what we chant at basketball games and stuff like that. If you want to get ahead, you're going to have to be aggressive. Ain't no one going to offer you life on a silver platter. You got to go work for it. You got to be aggressive. You got to take charge. And Jesus says, no, you want to be happy. You got to be meek. You pull away from aggression. Didn't make sense. He goes on, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied. The world says, if you want to be happy, you're going to have to be satisfied right now. You're going to have to get what you want right now because you will never be happy until you're satisfied. And Jesus says the exact opposite. He says, if you want to be happy, you've got to stay hungry and stay thirsty for what's right. One day you're going to be satisfied, but you'll never be happy if you're trying to be satisfied right now. Stay hungry and thirsty. Didn't make any sense. Next one, blessed are the merciful. Let me tell you what the world says. The world has adopted a Cobra Kai ethic. You remember Karate Kid, those of you who've seen it? Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir. That dojo, you're supposed to say it over and over, strike first, strike. You got this guy drilling in, and mercy's for the weak. Well, this is what we're taught. Look, people just take advantage of you. You can't let them take advantage. You've got to stand up for yourself. And what does Jesus say? He says, be so filled with mercy that you keep on forgiving people no matter what they do to you. Let them have the upper hand. It didn't make any sense. Keeps going. Blessed are the pure in heart. Let me tell you what the world teaches you. Blessed are those who indulge in pleasure. You want to be happy? Then go ahead and find what, what pleases you and give in to that. If it's a substance, if it's a relationship, if it's an addiction, whatever, as long as it pleases you, that's what you need to do. And Jesus says, no, it'll break you. Blessed are the pure those who stay away from those harmful pleasures of the world. That's where transcendent happiness comes from. Then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Let me go ahead and tell you what the world says. Blessed are the rabble-rousers. Blessed are the controversial. You want to know who has the most followers on, on Twitter? The ones who raise the most controversy. You want to know which news outlets have the most viewers? They're the ones who tell the most controversial stories. This is why, this is why news don't, don't tell good, kind, wholesome stories because they don't sell. Nobody wants to hear them. You want to get notoriety and attention? You got to stir up some controversy. And what does Jesus say? Now, if you want to find blessedness, then you diffuse controversy. You make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. It didn't make sense. And then he finishes with the craziest one. Blessed are the persecuted. The world says, blessed are those who can defend themselves. Blessed are those who stand up for themselves and everybody else around them. And Jesus said, no, blessed are those when you are reviled, when you are uttered, spoken, evil against, and when you are persecuted for my name's sake. It just doesn't make sense. How could that be the source of blessing? And if you were to keep on going through the Sermon on the Mount and keep reading all the stories, that he got, it's just even crazier. The world says... Hey, listen, man, you're all good. Just don't get caught. Jesus says, it doesn't matter just what you do. It even matters what you think. If you really want to follow my ways, even how you think matters. The world says, watch your back. Jesus says, give the shirt off your back to somebody else. world says, get all you can. Jesus says, give all you can. The world says, listen, man, when somebody messes with you, you got to get even. 
And Jesus says, when somebody mistreats you, you got to give grace. Over and over and over. Things that are utterly contradictory to what we would think would be right and wise and masterful. A whole sermon where Jesus just slaps the people in the face saying, you, you, you're all wrong in the way you view the world. And, and I was sitting there trying to internalize this. How, how do I share this where it didn't just fly over your heads? Like, how, how is this ethic so different? And how do, we, how do we understand it? And the place I got to is a realization that what Jesus is trying to teach us is that the transcendent state of happiness comes from what's inside us, not what's outside of us. So that's the difference between the two. The world will teach you, if you want to be happy, it's all external to you. Change your circumstances, achieve what you want, get what you want, become who you want to be, then you'll be happy. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Has nothing to do with your external, has everything to do with your internal. If you look at what Jesus taught in those Beatitudes, it all had to do with perspective and attitude and faith. Nothing with your outside. And Jesus says, if you want to find the transcendent state of happiness, one that is not the roller coaster of ups and downs of life, it comes from, let me change your inside. See, Jesus is trying to challenge their worldview. He's trying to challenge the way they perceived life because he knew that they were swimming in the wrong direction. And if they didn't change directions, they were going to die. That's why he was so countercultural. I'm, I'm curious, how many of you have been to the beach before? Raise, raise your hand if you've ever been like in the water at the beach. Okay, that's the majority of you have been there. We, we love the beach. We love going to the beach. We try to go uh, once a year if we can. Our favorite spot is right off the, the Florida Panhandle, a little area called 30A. We, we try to get a VRBO, get our whole tribe over there, and we love going to the beach. Now, if you've ever gone with little kids, it's not necessarily restful to go to the beach. Because especially my youngest, if she could drown in water about that deep right there, that girl is an accident waiting to happen. So when they're little, you got to like hover around them the whole time, like making sure that they're, that they're not drowning in that water. Because the beach is beautiful, but it's dangerous. But as our kids have gotten older, they, they've had a little more freedom as they, they get in the water. And, and every once in a while, we'll keep the younger two with us and they're building sandcastles. And my wife and I can actually like read a book and chill out for a little bit while the older four go in the water and play. But because they have a little more independence, every single year, we have the exact same conversation on our way to the beach. And they've heard it like a broken record. Here's what you do if you get stuck in a rip current. Y'all know what a riptide, rip current is? That's, that's the water that pulls you back out to the, to the ocean. I talked in the exact same scenario over and over. If you don't know what a rip current is, if you think about how the water works in a beach, the water goes off to the beach, but it has to come back. And usually when it channels back, it can find these little channels called rip currents where it puts the water back. And, and if you look at the, the waves, you'll see there's waves here, waves there, but there's no waves right here. That's the rip current, water going back. And the problem with a rip current is if you're in it, just floating there, you're going to be pulled out to the ocean. Now, they're usually real thin, maybe 10 to 20 feet max. So they're not very far. The water's channeling through. But one of the, the worst parts about a rip current is that your natural tendency when you feel yourself starting to go out into the ocean is to swim back to shore. You're looking for the shortest distance. That's the shore. I want to be back at the shore. So I'm going to swim toward the shore. And every single year in the United States of America, there are dozens of people who die in rip currents when it's incredibly preventable simply because they keep swimming like Dora, just keep swimming. Dory the fish, just keep going over and over and over. And they keep swimming and they get further and further away from the beach and they get exhausted, and they go down, and they drown. The easiest thing in the world is just to swim parallel to the shore, 
right back to shore. You don't have to work at it. But when you're swimming, your gut tells you, keep going forward. Keep swimming toward the shore. It, it, why? Here, we go over the exact same spiel. Kids, if you don't panic, turn your direction, swim parallel with the shore until you get out of the rip current and you feel the water change. And then you'll let it. And I drill it in their minds and in their hearts because there's going to come a moment when one of my children is stuck in a rip current. And in that moment, I know they're going to have a crucible of decision to make because every instinct inside them will tell them to swim back to the shore. And I want them to be so used to hearing my voice that no matter what their instincts tell them, they're going to turn and they're going to swim parallel to the shore and come back safely. I want it to be drilled into their minds to the point where they almost vomit when they hear me tell them again because they're so sick of me telling them over and over and over again, this is what you do when you get in a rip current. Because when that moment happens, I want them to make the right decision. Listen, this is exactly what Jesus is doing for us in the Beatitudes. He's telling us, guys, you are stuck in the rip current of life. You see what you want. You want that transcendent state of happiness. But the problem is you're in a rip current in this world and you're swimming toward happiness, trying to get all the things you think will make you happy. All these external things. If I just lose that weight, I know I'm going to be happy. If I just get that relationship, if we just start that family, if we just get that house, if we just get that car, it, whatever, if I just get that thing, if I reach that goal, if I make that success, that external thing, then I'll be happy. And we're swimming toward what we think we want and we don't realize we're getting further and further away from the thing that will make us happy. And I think when we finally wake up from our slumber, we realize that. I mean, look at the world, look at the people who are rich and famous and what you'll discover is there is not a, a, high, a high happiness index among them. They have so much they're afraid of losing constantly. People who have millions of dollars, we think they got the high life and they're scared silly every single day the stock market goes up and down because of how much they're losing. That person who finally got the dream car and they go out in Walmart and it's been keyed all over the side and now they're ticked off. These things that we think will land us that relationship we so desperately want and five years later, we don't even know why we married the person. That's not us, baby. I just want you to know that. <laughs> but I, I think there are people who they view this and they think if I just swim toward what will make me happy, then I'll be okay. And they don't realize they're just getting further and further away. And Jesus is saying, guys, you're going to have to trust me. I know you want happiness and you think swimming toward it will get it to you, but I got something counterintuitive. I want you to swim that way. And we go, but it doesn't make sense to, to be mournful, to be meek, to be peaceable, to, to be merciful, to be hungry and thirsty. It doesn't make sense. And Jesus says, I know you're just going to have to trust me. If you want where you're pursuing, you're going to have to swim that way because you're not going to get it swimming this way. And we, just like my kids, are going to have that moment of decision where we're going to have to decide in the current of life, what are we going to choose? Because our gut will tell us, keep going for what we think is going to make us happy. And Jesus says, you're going to die doing that. You've got to swim this direction. If you want to find transcendent state of happiness, true blessedness, you're going to have to trust me. Here's why I want to give you this sermon series at the beginning, this sermon at the beginning of the sermon series. I want to challenge you because over the next 12 weeks, you are going to hear 12 characteristics that just don't make sense. Not a single one of them is going to be intuitive. They are all counterintuitive because that was the way of Jesus. And there are going to be challenges for us that are going to be crucibles of faith. What are we going to decide to do what the world tells us, to do what our gut tells us, or to do what Jesus tells us? 
And I want to make sure you decide right now that we hammer in your head the truth of Jesus. I said, don't keep swimming toward what's going to kill you. Follow Jesus. That's where you're going to find blessedness. But you're going to have to decide right now that you believe that his thoughts are higher than your thoughts and his ways are higher than your ways and you're going to trust him and not yourself. It's going to be a crucible of faith. And I want, you, I want to challenge you right now to decide you're in. But listen, I'm going to go ahead and tell you from the very beginning of this sermon series, I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. There's going to be one thread that weaves its way through every single one of these sermons. It's the exact same thing you're going to hear week after week after week after week. And here's what it is. You're going to look at Jesus and discover you ain't Jesus. That he's perfect and you are not. That's what you're going to discover. In fact, this sermon series is going to be 12 weeks of slaps in the face. Over and over and over. Have I just talked you out of coming? 12 weeks of it. Here's the only good news. He will have slapped my face before I try to slap your face. Because when we look at Jesus, we discover how far away we've wandered from who Jesus is. There is a reason why the world respects Jesus, but doesn't necessarily like the church because we don't really look like Jesus. And he's going to challenge us week after week after week after week. And it's going to be painful. And I want to tell you that up front because I don't want you getting all mad at me when I get up in your business. Jesus is going to get up in our business over these next 12 weeks and challenge the very fiber of who we are. And it's going to get personal because he's going to challenge who you are, how you treat others, what you believe, your level of generosity, your level of kindness, your level of peace and patience, all these things that we stink at. He's going to come after us. And I want to tell you that up front, not to discourage you, not to dissuade you from listening in, but to help you understand why the Father sent his own son. The Father sent Jesus to the earth not just to die for our sins, but to show us what perfection looks like so that we can see we're not perfect and we need him to die for our sins. Jesus came to show us perfection. Listen, if we're in a rip current and we're being taken out to sea, there could always be a temptation to look and see that there's some other dude further out at sea than we are. And we go, no, I'm all right. At least I'm not like that guy. And that happens all the time in faith. We look around the church, and we know we're, we're not perfect, but dude, at least I'm not screwed up like that person. And we try to feel better about ourselves. But when you look at Jesus, there ain't no feeling better about yourself. You'll realize how far at sea you really are, how far you've wandered. But that was the whole point. The whole point of the Father sending his Son was to show us how far we'd wandered so that we would become poor in spirit. I want to go back to verse 3. I want to end where I, we started. Chapter 5, verse 3. Listen to what this verse says. There's a reason why Jesus started with this verse. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when it says poor in spirit, it's not talking about like our spirits are weak or broken. To be poor in spirit means to recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ, that we are broken and cannot fix ourselves. To be poor in spirit means to recognize our need for help. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. If you want to experience the power of Christ, it, recognizes, it comes from recognizing how far you've wandered from Christ and how desperately you need him. In a moment, I'm going to challenge you to do something right at the beginning of this series. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are going through some kind of hardship right now, it could be a financial struggle, it could be a relationship struggle, it could be a health struggle, it could be a work struggle, anything. If you're going through something I want to challenge you to be poor in spirit, to recognize your own weakness, to say, I can't handle this. 
God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Help. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to be willing to say, help. We're going to have pastors who will be down front, and you can come let us pray over you to cry out to God for help. Or you may just want to bow down on your knees before him. But there's a a humbling of, of being poor in spirit to say, I need your help, God. I cannot do this on my own. I'm going to give you a chance to do that in a moment. But before I do that, I want to speak to those of you who you you like Jesus, you're intrigued by Jesus, but maybe you've never placed all your faith in him. To truly be poor in spirit means to recognize you cannot save yourself. It means that you've been stuck in the rip current and you are so far far out in the ocean that it doesn't matter what direction you swim in, you are never going to make it back to shore. You know, I told you there are dozens of people who die every year in rip currents, but there are thousands of people who get stuck in them. And the only reason they don't die is because there are lifeguards at most of the beaches. And when somebody gets pulled out to sea, they wave their arms like this, and a lifeguard sees them, dives in the water with their flotation device, goes out, rescues them, and brings them back to shore. That's why they survive. The only ones who don't survive are those who never lift up their hands, and they wear themselves out. And there comes a moment where we have to be poor in spirit enough, broken enough, ready to recognize that we have failed, we have gotten so far away from Jesus, we are never going to attain happiness, we are never going to attain blessedness until he saves us. And we say, Jesus, save me, save me. And the moment we ask for it, Jesus dives into the water and he comes and he rescues us. That's why it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we humble ourselves, he offers us the very kingdom We'll just choose to ask for it. So listen, that's you. And you've never come to that place to say, Jesus, save me. I don't want to just be around you. I don't want to just like you. I I I want you to transform me, change me, forgive me, take over. Salvation can be yours today. So if you're in the room, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to come find one of us pastors and to say, I'm ready. I'm ready to begin a relationship with Jesus. And here's why you need to do it. You can come the next 12 weeks, you can learn all about Jesus, you can take copious notes, but you're never going to be like Jesus until you know Jesus, and the only way to know him is to invite him in. And we pastors want to help you take that step of faith. If you're watching online, we still want to connect with you. You can let us know just by texting the word next step to 94253, and a pastor will reach out to you. But in some form or fashion, whether you're doing it through the next step form or whether you're doing it in the room, you, you need to take that step of faith now to say, Jesus, I need you to save me. But before I give you a chance to respond to that, I want to say one last thing, and then we'll respond. I believe there are many of you in this room, and there's a danger that could creep in because the enemy will want to plant this lie in your head. And here's the lie. And those of you watching online, same lie. The lie is, well, you're never going to be like Jesus, so why even try to imitate him? I mean, I heard you say, Jason, that none of us are going to ever be like him. So why should I even try? It's going to be an exercise in futility. Well, here's here's what I want to say to you. Jesus said, follow me. To be his disciple means to try to learn from him and imitate him. He is calling us to try to be like him. And the good news of the gospel is those of us who believe in Jesus have the spirit of Christ inside of us, allowing us to do what we could not do without his spirit. And so I want you to actually be bold enough to say, Jesus, make me like you. Transform me. May the world look at me different after this sermon series. By the time I hit Easter, may the world see Jesus in me before like never in my past. Change me. 
I want you to pray that kind of bold prayer. We're going to sing a song. It says, build my life. It says, I will build my life upon your love because it is a firm foundation. We're building our life upon the truth of Jesus. We're saying, I want to be like you. I trust I can be like you. And after the song, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And so get your elements. If you didn't get your elements and you're in the room, you can go back to one of the places where you came in and get the Lord's Supper elements. If you're online, you can grab the bread and the cup. And during this next song, offer yourself to the Lord. Praise Him. Get your heart ready before we take the Lord's Supper. Let me remind you, if you need to respond, do so today. I invite you to stand up and invite the pastors to come down forward to the front. I want to remind you online, you can text the word next step to 94253 and one of the pastors will reach out to you the next 24 hours. But if you're in the room, I encourage you to come. If you need to humble yourself for a situation in your life and say, I need prayer, if you need to bow down on the steps and pray, come. If you're ready to say, Jesus, I need you to save me, today can be your day of salvation. Or if you just need to worship God in song, you do so. However you need to respond, now's the time you do so.